Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where everyone knows who is familiar with the show. We do two things each week. What are those two things? What do we try to accomplish? Well, we're relentlessly curious and we're steadfastly non-ideological. So if you want pre-programmed partisan pablum that is predictable, go someplace else. You're not going to find it here. What we're going to do today is we're going to have a, a show about one topic with two guests. The big topic is the future of the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. Two guests, one Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. The second guest, Roy Blunt, the uh, senator from Missouri, Republican. Chris Murphy's a Democrat, so you're going to have both sides of this ledger. Chris Murphy, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. So, the future of the Supreme Court, will it be fundamentally changed by Amy Coney Barrett's expected confirmation? And by that, I don't just mean in its direction of nine justices. Might it also be enlarged? Might the Senate itself be changed because of this nomination? Well, I don't know whether the Supreme Court will be enlarged. I think you know, legitimately, there are so many things going on right now that uh, many people like me simply haven't made up our mind on that question. We figure we should probably win the election first. Uh, but as to the first half of your question, I absolutely believe the Supreme Court will be changed by Amy Coney Barrett's um, selection because she is, and I think everyone agrees, uh, the fifth very conservative jurist on that court. And that means uh, that there are almost certainly now five votes on the court to reverse several very important precedents. Among them, uh, Roe versus Wade. I, I just think it will be a matter of time before that is struck down and states can criminalize abortion. Uh, the Obergefell decision that legalizes gay marriage. I think there are now uh, five votes to overturn that. We're going to go back to the days in which states could ban uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, and then the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I think there will now be five votes to strike down the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, that one may be a little bit trickier because it might leave wiggle room for Congress to come back and try to uh, amend or, or change the act uh, to make it operational again. But it would it, it will likely lead, at least for a period of time, uh, to a whole mess of people, millions of people in the country losing their insurance. So I do think that it does fundamentally change the balance of power on the court, and it likely will result in um, you know, people's lives being changed, um, uh, rights being changed uh, for the American people. And uh, I know folks kind of 
you know, have looked at these Supreme Court fights as political theater. You know, folks are not super convinced that they, you know, ultimately really matter to their lives. Um, but given that this is that pivotal seat, uh, that pivotal fifth swing seat uh, for the ultra conservative majority on the court, uh, I do think it ends up in the country looking very, very different if she is uh, approved. So let's take these in sequential order. The future of the Affordable Care Act will come before the court in the not too distant future, in a matter of weeks. And there are different interpretations of what Amy Coney Barrett said in the hearing. One is that she said, well, she might consider doing something with one component of that law, the individual mandate, which has already been nullified, and take that out, but preserve the rest of it. Um, some people looked at that as saying, well, maybe the Affordable Care Act survives in some semi-recognizable form, and that's not so scary. What did you hear? Well, I know her history, and her history is of fairly comprehensive hostility to the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, she has not agreed in the past with the Roberts decision, which is that the mandate uh, itself is constitutional so long as there is a tax applied to it. So um, she, I, I believe, um, is going to rule against the Constitution of the Affordable Care Act uh, in its entirety. And I sort of take Donald Trump at his word. I mean, we play this parlor game in Washington in which we pretend that, you know, the president doesn't actually do what he says. And sometimes that's true, but he has made it clear on the Supreme Court, um, and he said it a number of times, that he is only going to appoint judges uh, that strike down Roe versus Wade and get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Over and over again, he said, John Roberts is the worst justice because he's supposed to be a conservative, but he voted uh, and led the decision to uphold the, the uh, Affordable Care Act. And I'm not going to make that mistake again. So I think you got to take him at his word. And if you do, then Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Tony Barrett, his three picks, will vote to overturn the Affordable Care Act. And they'll join with uh, Alito and Thomas. And potentially by the beginning of next year, because as you mentioned, the hearing is a week after the election, potentially by the beginning of next year, uh, we could be in a situation in this country in which uh, 23 million Americans don't have health insurance any longer in the middle of a pandemic. That is just absolutely frightening. We have talked before. You've been on the show before. And there are times when those in your party, even those in the Republican Party, regard this president as chaotic, disorganized, improvisational and the like. But it strikes me, Senator, that he's not when it comes to the federal bench, that there is an iron discipline, if not an iron will behind the intent and the nominating process and the confirmation process. Do you agree? Well, I, I, I would in part. Um, so there is discipline. And that's not a compliment. That's an observation. Yeah, so yeah, yeah no. But, but here's why. I think I think you're right in that. Um, there has been discipline, right? This uh, Senate has approved, you know, uh, a, a record-setting number of conservative judges. Obviously, McConnell had blocked all of Obama's judges in the final two years so that Trump started with 100-plus vacancies that he could fill. Uh, but the reason that this part of the Trump presidency has um, sort of been more efficient is because he's outsourced it, right? He, he, he has sort of made it very clear that he's not running the judicial selection process, that he has given that job uh, to the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation and Mitch McConnell. Uh, and so they approve his judges. They give him a list. McConnell sets the schedule for implementation uh, of, those, uh, of those nominations. Uh, and you have a, a, a four-year period of time in which you have had a ton of very conservative jurists put on the court. 
I think that's largely because uh, Trump isn't doing that work for the for, for the most part. He has uh, outsourced it to these conservative groups that are funded by dark money, um, funded by you know billionaire donors, likely that we have you know no idea of their origin or their motives. When I asked you first about the composition of the court, you said, well, maybe we ought to win the election first. All right, let's assume that Democrats do win the election and it, Democrats win control of the Senate. And that becomes a live wire. I know it's a sort of hypothetical, but not really. It's something you ought to think about. Does the necessity to deal with the issues you said are at threat, the rights that may be at threat, by enlarging the court or using the presidency of Joe Biden, assuming he wins, and a Senate Democratic majority to take things up legislatively and by virtue of that, say we're going to leave the court as it is, but we're going to change the Senate as it is, and we're going to abolish the legislative filibuster to move things more rapidly through and remedy the Supreme Court threat through legislation. I, um, I have learned my lesson uh, over the course of the last four years, but specifically in the last 30 days. Uh, Republicans in the Senate do not care about tradition. They do not care about truth-telling. Uh, they do not care about fairness. They are going to use all of the power available to them to implement their agenda. Um, it's just sort of stunning that, you know, frankly, more attention hasn't been paid to the fact that the chairman of the Judiciary Committee said, mark my words, use them against me. We will not appoint a judge in Trump's last term. Uh, and we all kind of knew he wasn't telling the truth at the time, but uh, we now know. Um, we now know that you know they're going to say anything in order to you know get their agenda done. So um, listen, there are new rules in the Senate. I think we have to all accept those new rules. Uh, we have to um, decide as Democrats that we are going to um, govern, and and that we are going to um, uh, we're going to understand that if we don't, Republicans will you know take advantage of our naivete. So what does that mean? Um, uh, that does mean to me that we take a look at the legislative filibuster. And I've long been an opponent of the filibuster, so that's nothing new. Uh, but I just don't know that I'm willing to allow for a small minority of senators um, representing largely smaller states to be able to stand in the way of things that 70 or 80 or 90 percent of the American public want. So, you know, I, I would certainly support taking a look at the legislative filibuster as to other changes uh, you know, I haven't made up my mind and I'd certainly you know, wait to talk to my colleagues if we were in the majority. That's the voice of Chris Murphy. That's the end of segment one. Stay tuned for segment two. Again, this is one topic, big topic, future of the Supreme Court, two guests. Chris Murphy is the first. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two in just a second. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Chris Murphy is our guest, Democratic Senator from Connecticut. It's great to have you with us. Uh, as we were going to break, you mentioned Lindsey Graham. What he said was that this was, I believe, at the Atlantic Festival. If there's an opening and the primaries have started, 
we're not going to fill it. And then he said, hold the tape. All that illustrates to you a set of values that veer in the direction of hypocrisy, lust for power, what? Well, he wasn't the only one that said it. I mean, he was the but only he's one. He's the chairman that said of the committee. He, yeah, he's he the chairman the, of the committee, and he obviously matters more than anybody else. Yeah, he said it in a way that was pretty definitive uh, and easy to you know to, to come back to. Uh, but yeah, listen, I, I think these guys, you know, ultimately have shown over and over again that they're willing to change the rules in order to get what they want. Um, you know, they they will say, uh, well, you know, Harry Reid was the first person to change the rules, and. Uh, he did. He changed the rules for lower courts and for presidential nominees. Um, but Republicans have enacted in a very short period of time a dizzying number of changes in the Senate. It's not just that they've gone back on their word on this election year precedent. They uh, got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices. They dramatically narrowed the amount of time that we have to consider judges, two hours um, for district court nominees. Uh, they have gotten rid of something called the blue slip, which gives um, minority party senators the right to have a say in the selection of, um, of, of appellate court and district court nominees. I mean, the Senate looks fundamentally different today than it did when Mitch McConnell took over. And again, I just think that that, you know, Democrats need to wake up and, you know, understand that Republicans are going to do anything in order to get their priorities enacted into law. And we've got to be a little bit more cold-blooded ourselves if we get back into power. So I want to ask you one question that is related to all of this. And Senator Graham has said it, but other senators on the Republican side have as well. They said, look, when Elena Kagan came before the body, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg came before the body, when Sonia Sotomayor came before the body, we looked at their underlying legal qualifications, found them more than sufficient, and knew they were ideologically against what we are for, but we voted for them anyway. Democrats don't do that. It's fundamentally different when a conservative president appoints a conservative nominee. Legal qualifications don't matter. Ideology does. And you, in your party, not individually, but collectively have changed the rules. I want you to evaluate that. Well, I I'd ask them how they reconcile that view with their decision to not give Merrick Garland a vote, uh, to not even give him the courtesy of a meeting. Uh, so if they claim that the standard has changed and that it used to be that members of the uh, opposing party, the president, gave some deference to, uh, to the to the. Uh, to the president on his judicial nominations, uh, it's Republicans who changed that uh, by refusing to even meet with Merrick Garland and holding up that nomination for an entire year. So, you know, cry me a river um, if you're if you're claiming that uh, presidents aren't given a fair shake by the opposing party on S Supreme Court nominees. Um, I will tell you, Major, um, if you look at my record, I have actually voted for more of this president's nominees, um, both to the bench and to uh, cabinet and sub-cabinet positions than uh, most of my Democratic colleagues, with the exception of only a few. Because I generally have applied a test in which I say, listen, if this person is sort of broadly in the mainstream uh, and is qualified, I I'm going to support them. And so I I've gotten grief from my base occasionally for supporting uh, folks that you know, may be pretty conservative and folks I wouldn't choose, but I think are sort of between the uh, the 20 yard lines. I just don't think Amy Coney Barrett is between the 20 yard lines. I think she is going to rewrite the Second Amendment. I think she's going to overturn the Affordable Care Act. She's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. She's going to make uh, same sex marriage uh, illegal again. I just don't think that's where the middle 60% of the country is right now. Uh, and so that's why I don't think she should be on the Supreme Court. But I also don't think the Republicans should get away with saying 
uh, that Democrats are breaking with precedent after they wouldn't even give Merrick Garland a, a, a meeting, never mind a vote uh, for an entire year. Not to mention other federal appeals court and to circuit court judges that were not even taken up during the last year and a half of the Obama administration, something you referred to earlier. That's also part of this record, is it not? It is. I mean, it is. We, sh- we need to remember that, that um, when McConnell took control, he just sort of shut down the entire process. Merrick Garland was the highest profile judge that he refused to provide a vote on. Uh, but he said, listen, Obama isn't getting any more judges. And they all sat there so that when Trump was... Uh, was sworn in, there were, I think, 85 vacant district court seats, uh, and there was about 16 appellate court seats. And they very quickly filled all those seats. And then, you know, listen, it's not coincidental that um, things started to change. This lawsuit to repeal the Affordable Care Act, um, a lot of folks thought that this was kind of out of left field, the legal theory. Um, But it was a Trump-appointed judge who provided the thin majority uh, to rule against the Affordable Care Act in the appellate court that now has put this case before the Supreme Court. So uh, to my mind, this has been a very thoughtful, methodical plan to use the courts to overturn things like the Affordable Care Act that the Republicans couldn't do in Congress and uh, making sure that all of those vacancies existed after Obama left was part of that plan. With your indulgence, I'm going to ask you about something that I'm focusing on in my episode of my other podcast, The Debrief. And for those listening and watching, I highly recommend you check it out. And it's about what looks to me to be, and to many we've talked to, Senator, a through line from the Scalia-Bork confirmation hearings of the mid-80s to Amy Coney Barrett. That is to say, this idea of originalism or textualism. And I wonder if you think those are the things which put you outside that 20-yard line marker you said, put you outside of the mainstream, because Amy Coney Barrett certainly is, calls herself quite openly a disciple of Antonin Scalia. And the idea, it seems to me, is if you say you're a textualist or an originalist, you're signaling to those who might nominate you that I'm not going to be a David Souter, I'm not going to be a John Roberts. This guarantees what you want without having me to say what I'm going to do. I'd like you to evaluate that. Yeah, my impression is that er, this idea of originalism is just an excuse uh, to impose your own moral views on the country. Because, um, you know, let, let's take what originalism means on the issue of the Second Amendment. So, and, and Amy Coney Barrett has a view on this because she's actually issued a decision on a Second Amendment case using originalism as the basis for her ruling. And what she said in that case is that. Um, you know, hey, um, you know, the, 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 you got to read as to what the founding fathers really um, thought when they wrote the Second Amendment. And, you know, all of these new guns didn't exist during uh, the uh, debate of the, of the U.S. Constitution. And so um, clearly they couldn't have meant uh, to uh, prohibit the guns that we see today because they didn't exist back then. Uh, and, and so it sort of, and so then she says, so, so the court now has to make our decisions on our own as to sort of who's dangerous and shouldn't own guns or what kind of guns can be owned and can't. Because if you're an originalist, um, the founding fathers clearly couldn't have had an opinion on that. So I've got to substitute my own opinion uh, for theirs. And so originalism just becomes this excuse, especially when it comes to kind of questions that the founding fathers couldn't have had an opinion on to substitute your own um, and instead of trying to read the text in a modern context. So 
Uh, I just think ultimately it's an excuse for people who claim to be originalists to end up just imposing their own moral views onto In our last minute, I want to ask you about the political effect of this nomination and confirmation process. In my experience, satisfaction doesn't mobilize nearly as much as resentment. Well, I I think people are paying attention. uh, And, you know, this election is about persuasion and turnout. Uh, Young people, um, you know, often, unfortunately, stay home in these elections. Um, But we are seeing as voting opens up in places like Texas and Georgia, uh, record turnout, and it looks like potentially record turnout amongst young people um, who are now looking at this court that's going to, you know, invalidate Roe versus Wade, is going to make it harder to protect schools from gun violence, and they're showing up. Uh, so I really think that by ramming this nominee through before the election, which is what they have to do in order to overturn the uh, Affordable Care Act because the hearing is right after the election. Uh, they are going to uh, you know, end up in uh, Joe Biden winning and the Republicans losing the Senate because there are going to be folks that might have stayed home that are now going to turn out. On their side, I think every sort of conservative voter that really cares about the Supreme Court also really loves Donald Trump and they were turning out anyway. On our side, I think this activates uh, a lot of voters that may have you know, not been Uh, as excited about Biden's candidacy that are now absolutely coming out because of uh, this ram job. That's the voice of Chris Murphy, our special guest. Senator, always a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Good luck. Thanks. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, of course. Welcome back to my living room here in Washington, D.C. As I told you at the top of the show, one topic, two guests. The topic, Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, the future thereof. The two guests. First, you heard from Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. Now I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Senator Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Major. Great to be with you. So Chris Murphy told us that he is certain upon confirmation, which is inevitable, Amy Coney Barrett will vote to do the three things, repeal Roe versus Wade, repeal the Affordable Care Act, and repeal Supreme Court support and therefore law of the land of gay marriage. True? I I can't imagine that's true. I'd I'd certainly be glad to take some money from Chris Murphy on those three things, the trifecta. I don't know what cases might come up, but I think she's going to look at the case, look at the law, look at the Constitution, uh, and uh, make a the, the a good decision. He told us that he takes the president seriously when the president says he would like to see justices get rid of the Affordable Care Act and do things differently than Justice Roberts did. Do you take the president seriously on that? Well, I'd be surprised if Chris Murphy actually takes the president seriously. I know Chris well. I've worked with him on some legislation. Uh, This might be the first time he's taken the president seriously. Uh, You know, I, I take her seriously. When she says she has not talked to anybody about these cases, has made no commitments on these cases, uh, one, she's a great person, she's a fine judge, and she's under oath. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take her seriously, and I'm sure that that's exactly the facts. Are voters in Missouri concerned about the future of the Affordable Care Act in the sense that this is not a hypothetical, as you well know, Senator, a case will be before the court right after the election. In all likelihood, Justice Barrett will be exactly that, Justice Barrett, and hear the case. 
Is this a issue of political importance in Missouri? I would think so. I would think a number of things that are in the Affordable Care Act are, are sort of baked into the system now. Uh, that whatever would happen in the court, uh, the country would expect and the Congress would do what was necessary uh, to maintain things like a the protection for pre-existing conditions. Uh, I, had a, I had a piece of legislation, I think it's the only Republican piece of legislation of the many that we had that made it into the bill that allowed people to stay on their, uh, their parents' insurance until they were 26. Uh, some states had that, some states didn't. I don't see that going back. Uh, but actually, I, I think it's probably a mistake to presuppose what the court uh, might do or what the court will decide the Congress was trying to do and whether this one provision uh, that is no longer in the law because the Congress knew they were taking it out, that somehow, okay, the Congress passes a law, that's the law. The Congress decides to take this one piece out of the law, and that's the one thing they do. I'm not a lawyer, but it doesn't sound like to me that you could assume from those two things that the Congress that could have eliminated the whole law uh, de decided, no, we're just going to take this one piece out, and that will weaken it to the point that a bunch of attorneys general can take this to court and get the whole law eliminated. I understand the politics of this. I understand, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, a fine, a fine candidate, brilliant lawyer, humble, good natured, but strong in so many ways. Uh, why would they want to talk about her if they could turn this into a fight about every element of the Affordable Care Act. I'd be shocked if it works out the way that they're all predicting it will work out. But I certainly understand the politics of the next three weeks of why you'd want to suggest that might happen. But uh, I'm pretty sure that's not the likely outcome. You let us down this road just a teeny bit, and I'm not going to dwell excessively on it, but what you talked about was the individual mandate. And it was, of course, that element of the law that Justice Roberts looked to and said, that's justifiable. It's a taxing mechanism. Therefore, the constitutional structure beneath the Affordable Care Act is therefore legitimate and defensible. Well, when you take out the individual mandate, there are those who argue, well, you've taken out that superstructure, you can get rid of the whole thing, but you don't necessarily believe that's what's going to happen if I heard you correctly. Well, again, I, I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to overanalyze this, but the individual man mandates, I recall what happened, instead of being a penalty, which apparently might have been a problem, uh, the Chief Justice decided it was a tax which every Democrat, including everybody in the Obama administration had said up till then, it was not a tax. Precisely. So if you, if you justify this in the fact it's not a penalty, it's a tax, and now it's neither a tax or a penalty, because you, I, I don't see the logic of where that goes. Uh, yeah, that might've been the reason, and, but the only reason he had to say it was a tax was because I think there was a flaw in the idea it could be a penalty. Now the penalty's gone and the tax is gone and there's nothing else to argue about there. There, there may be future challenges of the, of the, of, of the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, and this one might have a different outcome than I would expect. But I think this is an awful lot of talk in a political year about a political topic uh, that's not likely to result in anything like the Democrats are saying it's going to result in. And if it does, and if it does, uh, there are things in this law that 
virtually 100% of the Congress and both candidates for president have said that they are for, and we should be able to rectify that if in what I think is the unlikely result of this case that that becomes a problem. But I, I, I'm thinking that's probably not what's gonna happen. Because you're in the Republican Party, you're in the majority, you have uh, regular and uh, strategic conversation on leadership matters. What is the schedule? When will this come to the Senate floor? When do you expect her to be confirmed? And will that be the last bit of business for this Senate before the election? Well, I think we're likely to get to this the week before the election. And so it, it probably will be the last bit of business or near the last bit of business. There may be some things we have to do to carry over uh, into the early days of November, but uh, we've we funded the government up through the middle of December. Uh, I think that uh, the um, Judiciary Committee will do what they always do at the end of their discussion, I assume, to, uh, and when they, they end the debate, they usually ask for a week and it's always granted before they have the final vote. And so that final vote comes the 22nd of October and uh, sometime after that, within a week after that, um, hopefully sooner rather than later in that week, uh, we'll get this done. Uh, when that's done, I'd love to get back to having a, a COVID relief package, which I think is a big failure of the Congress not to find a way to agree. Uh, but uh, those will be. this will be one of the last things this Congress is able to do. The Treasury Secretary, since you brought it up, Steve Mnuchin, said he doesn't think it's going to be likely to get this done, meaning a COVID relief bill, the fourth of its kind before the election. Do you agree? Sounds hard. By the time we would actually read out a bill and do all the things you have to do and what has become a fairly complicated bill, uh, it's hard. Uh, anything is doable. And, you know, appropriators, I am one. Yes. And the appropriation staff is used to working every day as long as it takes and every night as long as it takes to get this done. Uh, but we've got to have a deal before we really talk about whether it's possible or not. And again, I, I think it's a big failure of the Congress. There's been largely agreement on uh, the trillion dollars of this that's truly COVID relief and then some disagreement on the next amount of money that's a state and local money and lots of disagreement on the trillion dollars in the House bill that had nothing to do with uh, the COVID issue, but just a chance to pass a trillion dollars worth of things that you'd wanted to do for a long time. Do you believe a majority of the Senate Republican conference would vote for a trillion dollars? A trillion dollar bill? I think a majority would vote for a trillion dollar bill. I don't think a majority is likely to vote for a two trillion dollar bill. And so uh, trying to find that number between those two numbers uh, that still gets a majority of Republicans and most of the Democrats and puts a bill on the president's desk is where the art has always been in this process, more art than science at this point. That is the voice of Roy Blunt, Republican Senator from Missouri. We're happy to say that our listeners, faithful listeners on KMOX in St. Louis are enjoying this version of The Takeout, as well our listeners from more than 75 radio stations around the country, including Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. Back for segment four in just a second. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. 
Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Back with Roy Blunt, Republican Senator from the great state of Missouri. My alma mater, as many of you know, is the University of Missouri. So I have a big, big wide open space in my heart for all things Missouri. Um, Senator, we talked to Chris Murphy. He was the first two segments of this program. And I asked him if on the other side of Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, and it's going to happen, as you indicated on the schedule, the Senate will be different. The composition and size of the Supreme Court may be different. And his answer was, well, we don't really need to give you that. Maybe we need to win the election first. And then when I followed up on that, he said, well, you know, Republicans have been pretty brutal and pretty intense about changing and altering the rules. His words, not mine. And Democrats, direct quote, need to be more cold blooded about these matters. What do you think all that means? You know, I'm not sure what it means, uh, nor who has the coldest blood or the warmest blood here. I would say on the confirmation process for judges. In the last 15 or 20 years, it is the judges that were nominated by uh, Democratic presidents who got lots of votes in the Senate because Republicans looked at this differently than Democrats did. Look at the difference in the Kagan vote and the Alita vote. This is not just uh, what happens, uh, what's happened over some long period of time. There's been a, a big change here. I think Republicans have finally decided, well, if that's the way this is going to be, uh, we're going to have to step up uh, and do our part as well. But at the same time, Major, it was the suggestion and the decision of Senator Reid to change the rules on all judges that were available to them at the time. It, to, to a 51 vote margin and plenty of warning given then, if you do this, you're gonna be sorry. Um, we changed the final rule on judges. Uh, basically, you could argue that that returned judges to the more traditional view of presidential appointments where a majority uh, easily confirmed judges and did that for decades. I think if, if, the, if our friends the Democrats get in control of the Senate, and they think they won't be sorry if they change the other rules of the Senate to where the Senate functions like the House with a majority vote on all issues. Uh, they may feel pretty good about that for a couple of years. But when that two years is over, uh, my guess is they'll be just as sorry they made that change as they made the change uh, to, uh, to change all of the judicial confirmations uh, in the country that were available to them at the time. And I think if there had been a Supreme Court seat, they would have included that then. Uh, and, um, you know, when you when you go down this road, it's awfully hard to turn back. And I think if you lose the character of the Senate legislatively, you lose a lot in the Senate. Not only do you lose the difference in the Senate and the House, where uh, the, the Senate is designed not to be a in the legislative body that every two years changes its mind about everything, uh, but also because of the fact that very seldom as either party had 60 uh, votes, uh, that the Senate is automatically a place where you have to find somebody else to work with. Uh, my staff uh, uh, about three years ago 
uh, check to see how many of the, this is before Kavanaugh, this so it was before Kavanaugh, if it had been after Kavanaugh, I think I can understand. They were just kind of looking to see how many of the 48 Democrat senators at the time I'd been a principal sponsor of a piece of legislation with, one of the top Republican, and the answer was 44. The Senate is a place that because of its, its design makes you find that one thing or those two things, and eventually if you find one or two, before you know it, you've found five or six things, you agree with another individual on the other side. If you eliminate the need to do that, you'll eliminate a lot of the fundamental relationship building that occurs in the Senate. And also in many ways, you'll turn the Senate into the House so that uh, the, the flavor of the moment becomes what both the House and the Senate do. And then the next House and Senate decide, well, we went too far, let's go back the other way. Uh, the Senate, to a great extent, has kept us from switching quickly to where the country has to think for a couple, sometimes three election cycles. Is this really what we want to do? Is this really the message we want to send to Washington, D.C., that we dramatically want to change this in this way? And I think it's a huge mistake, uh, but uh, uh, I hope I get a chance to give advice on this if they are in control. And I'm absolutely sure if we're in control in the next Senate, we will not change that rule. Uh, we didn't change it this, in uh, uh, 1995 when, when uh, Republicans took over the Senate, had the House, had the, and uh, I think we wouldn't change it uh, again. And just so the viewers and listeners fully comprehend this. And you know, Senator, I'm an institutional nerd. I love to get deep into this stuff, but not getting too deep. 60 votes has been the threshold. It's not in the Constitution. It's a Senate rule. It's been a building block of this legislative bipartisan situation for, for many, many years. And as you said, when he was Majority Leader Harry Reid, changed that 60 vote threshold for every federal appellate and circuit judge before short of the Supreme Court, then you guys change it for the Supreme Court. And now the big question is, do you change legislation? Because right now legislation still needs 60 votes if there's a filibuster offer. If you change it to 51, that means things can go right through with 51. And that idea of linking arms and finding some other bipartisan partner is diminished entirely. And to your point, the Senate looks almost exactly temperamentally and procedurally like the house. That, that's right. You, you, you remove the big incentive. And, and, you know, as I was saying earlier, when you find that first thing to work with somebody on, uh, before you know it, you're thinking, you know, we got along really fine on that. You find the second thing and the third thing. And before you know it, you've got a legislative duo or a, a set of legislative relationships that you just feel differently about whatever that person has to say. You might not agree, but you listen more closely, you listen more respectfully, you become more and more convinced that they're as well motivated as you are. And that, that won't happen in a Senate where the majority can do anything the majority wants to do. And things will happen that quickly the country will become sorry they did it that way and we'll have Two years later, you go back and well, we're going to reverse that. We went too far. And then, you you know, it it, it 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 ends the stability, but it also really affects the working environment of the Senate. So before I let you go, we've got about 45 seconds to go. 
Do you think that the president is a net underdog or a net favorite in this race for re-election? Hard to tell. I think he underpolls pretty dramatically. I saw a Rasmussen poll this week where I think the numbers, more than 70% of the people who said they were voting for Joe Biden were glad for their friends, their neighbors, or people at work to know they were voting for him. 22% of the people voting uh, for President Trump said they were glad for people to know that they were voting for President Trump. Uh, and uh, so there's, it's, it's hard to tell. I, I do know that uh, in the world we live in right now, an awful lot can happen in 20 days or so, and that's how much time we have left. I'm living proof, and so are you, Senator. Everyone in Washington in the country is a lot can happen in 20 days, considering the 20 days we've just been through. Roy, Roy Blunt, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Hope to do it again. This has been it for The Takeout. Everyone, podcast platforms, radio audience, and CBSN. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.